What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and wow, it's 2024. So a couple things are a little different. First of all, you actually see my face. That's right. Moving forward, we're actually going to be able to have, um, what's the word, some video content, right? So if you're watching us live on YouTube or if you're a subscriber on Patreon, first of all, if you're a subscriber on Patreon, you got this a few days early, right? You got this on Saturday as opposed to on Tuesday. But either way, um, if you're... If you're engaging us on one of those mediums, you actually see me talking right now to try to face reveal a whole face alert. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm excited about this year. I'm excited about all the things that we're doing at Living Corporate um, as a company, as a podcast network, um, as a community. Right. I'm excited about just the work that we're, we're getting into. Um, look, we, we have a fire conversation with Dr. Maisha Gray Diggs, who is. Uh, the head of, of DEI over at Eventbrite. Frankly, she's the head of a few different things at Eventbrite. She's really her over there, straight up. I mean, it's a fire conversation. Uh, we talk about her background. We talk about systems thinking. We talk about uh, the landscape and future of this work. But before we get to that conversation, there's some house cleaning, kind of like level setting I want to do for Living Corporate as we get into our seventh season. That's right, our seventh season. We launched Living Corporate back in 2018. And we're on our seventh season. So listen, um, I want to I, I want to talk about like as I'm recording this, you know, we're, we're about a week or so out from Dr. Claudine Gay's um, maybe more than a week out from her ouster, but definitely less than a week out from all of the the nonsense. Right. Like we see Bill Ackman, who is this very, very wealthy um, uh, I don't know, entrepreneur, business person who has all of these um, folks, all of these other folks who are predominantly white executives, but some black and brown, you know, conservatives too. We're trying to uh, jump in the line. There's a shorter line over there. So they, you know, some of that, I don't know, whatever, um, who are really rallying and so excited about the end of DEI. Hey, DEI must die. Or they even call it DIE, right? They, people are so excited. You would think that like, the civil rights civil rights have been repealed, right? I mean, I know that people are taking away our rights, but you know what I mean. Like, people are very, there are a lot of executives jumping out the window, cheering on the fact that, um, that, um, that it seems as if DEI is really on its last leg. And, and so, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit. I want, I want to address, um, two, really two major groups, right? Um, I want to address two major groups and then, then I want to get into like the, so what, like, why am I addressing these groups? And then we'll get going. Okay. All right. So let's just get to it. So first off, I want to talk to, um, these anti DEI folks who say DEI is a sham, that it's harmful, um, that, you know, that it's not realistic, blah, 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 blah. So the first thing I want to say is, believe it or not, a lot of people, <laughs> including the person you're looking at or hearing on your podcast right now have known that corporate DEI has been ineffective. Hell, I've been calling out for the last six years, right? We know that. If you look at the data, uh, the average tenure of a chief diversity officer is less than two years as of 2021. Now, if you look at probably the last couple years uh, with all these additional layoffs, I would imagine it's even shorter than that. But in 2018, it was just over three years. It's not a long time to have a job, y'all. Um, you know, I can shout out countless CEOs, officers, uh, senior and junior executives have come to this very podcast. I'm talking about, about come to live in corporate. Uh, on the record, representing the companies that they work for, and they've called out the following things. First off, there's a ton of bad actors who enter this space. Uh, 
uh, at the merge of George Floyd, who came in trying to just do a rebrand, creating a bunch of harmful language and workshops and things that were not beneficial to anybody, right? Like that's something that has been on the record. Um, DEI practitioners rarely have full access to raw, unfiltered organizational data, right? So like, even when it comes to like these layoff decisions, very few diversity teams were involved in looking at that information. In fact, they were too busy probably getting fired. Not probably, they were getting fired. We've seen organizations just slash and cut a lot of these roles left and right in major organizations. Um, DEI practitioners know that all employees, including those on the margins, are exhausted by the performative culture awareness type DEI programming that we're seeing day to day. Like we all, we're all aware that that type of work is not beneficial, right? But the main problem that these DEI practitioners have is that they're not actually empowered or funded to do anything much more than a breakfast or a lunch, right? So it's tough or a dance or whatever, not a a dance. Yeah. Like a dance, a party, whatever the case is. The reason that a lot of anti DEI folks don't realize this though, they like, they don't realize that they're talking to an audience that is also um, exhausted from this space. It's simple. They don't listen because they don't believe that anyone has anything of value that uh, is worth them taking the time to listen to. That's it, right? It reminds me of this MLK quote. Uh, this is back in the day. This is one of the quotes they don't put on billboards and certainly that you won't see a bunch of Republicans uh, tweeting uh, to bludgeon uh, to, or using as a cudgel for um, to harm black people. But one of his quotes, he said, uh, whites, it must be frankly said, are not putting in a similar mass effort to reeducate themselves out of their racial ignorance. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that white people of America believe they have so little to learn. Now I'm not saying that this anti DEI sentiment is solely from white people. It's, it's not, it's not solely from white people. There are black and Brown people who are participating in a lot of this anti DEI rhetoric and misinformation as well. Uh, So I'm not going to make it a purely racialized thing. However, there is this sense of superiority and the majority of people that we're seeing jump out the window and talk really crazy and celebrate um, black and brown people being punished and their roles being stripped away or being really ironically canceled. I'm happen to be white. Right. And the reality is if you're not interested um, in learning, then you would never know what I just told you. Right. You would have never known that, Hey, there's an overwhelming sentiment that quote unquote DEI, especially as it is corporately delivered, is ineffective. There's articles from 2016, 2017, 2013. There's all types of writing and research out there. There's people I've, we've had people on living corporate, come on and talk about how DEI training is a sham, right? Uh, how unconscious bias is, is ineffective. Like we've had all this content. We've talked about this over and over and over and over and over again. Right. And so here's the thing. I don't want to believe that everybody right now who's in this moment of, I'm so sick of DEI, um, DEI needs to fail. DEI needs to go away are using this really just to, um, to, uh, to champion their own racial animus. I don't want to believe that. Right. Um, I, I, for the sake of just my own soul and spirit, I, I think that's very myopic. I think it's minimalistic. I don't want to believe that. I do believe that's a, a very significant population, but I don't think literally everybody is on that train, right? So what I would advise 
if you are someone who listens to Living Corporate, who engages this content, yo, share this with the people in your network who you know are not about, who are not interested in, in, uh, in DEI so they can just learn, right? I'm not saying that um, there isn't space for both, for, for several parties to learn and agree, but there's a large swath of misinformation happening right now on this topic. And it's, it, it's, it, it is overwhelmingly due to the fact that people are simply not slowing down enough to learn and educate themselves on anything. They're just talking at it, but you wouldn't talk about rocket science like that. You wouldn't talk about chemical engineering like that. You wouldn't talk about, um, uh, women's health. Like that. I mean, well, wait, some of y'all do be talking about women's, women's health like that. Uh, it's a bad example. Uh, you wouldn't talk about football like that. That was a joke. It was a joke, but it wasn't because y'all be y'all wilding, be stripping our rights away every day. But the point is, is that like we're in this we're in this space. It's very dangerous where perspectives don't really seem to count or matter or topics even don't even seem to count or matter until the majority starts talking about it. Right. It's it's very creepy. Right. Like it's 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 eerie, frankly, to me. So. You know, I, I want I want y'all just to take the time for those who are anti DEI and who are who are actually operating in decent faith. Take the time to like slow down and educate yourself because you would be perhaps pleasantly surprised to learn that we us us being historically marginalized people, most of us, especially DEI practitioners, those who are not in it scamming and shamming. I'm not even talking to them, okay? Because I'm not talking to them that we actually have been knowing this stuff has been fraudulent for quite a while, right? Think about it. Before this lightning rod moment with Dr. Claudine Gay, there have been articles and articles about the performative nature of DEI and how representation hasn't really fundamentally shifted or changed in the past four or five years, right? Decade, hell. But since DEI has really stood up, there hasn't been anything that has majorly shifted or changed. We kept the same cyclical issues. Right. If you ever take like the average growth uh, or representation of different spaces or groups or even retention rates of certain uh, population groups and you take it over time, at best, it's flat. But honestly, it's really flat trending down. Right. Like if you look at PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers is a great example. They have this huge report that they publish every year that they love. And in that report, they tuck in there. They tuck in there like their actual performance in some of those programs, a lot of those programs are flat. A lot of the programs that they're, that they're measuring, that they are publishing the results against are flat. Most of them are flat, but like very slightly triggering down, like negative 0.5% or negative 1%. But they're not, there's nothing really happening in this space. And some of the loudest voices who are often told to be quiet so that they, so that we can still have our galas and our fundraisers and, you know, take a picture with Trevor Noah or whatever are told, you know, they're told to be, we're told to be quiet. But like the reality is, is that this work has been really shammy and really scammy um, and performative and theatrical and, um, and uh, ornamental for a long time, right? A long time. Uh, now I, I want to also talk to the DEI leaders, uh, who are reacting in this moment, trying to figure out what to do or how to pivot and how to adjust. Now, let me say this right now. 
If you're not a senior executive leader, like I'm talking about a senior executive leader, like somebody who actually controls a budget, um, who actually controls a budget, who actually has a, um, who sits at the table, at the real table too, the big kids table with the other decision makers and making actual decisions that lead the company, you need to be thinking about how you're going to pivot to something else. (coughs) You need to be thinking about how you're going to pivot to a different role, a different space, a different job, straight up. I'm not trying to be funny, right? Like your role is continuing to get gutted as we speak. Like, I can't tell you how many people I reached out, reached out to in month one to see if, Hey, can you want to do something to live in corporate? I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm giving y'all realty, right? I'm talking about, I'm over here like selling, like we're selling, right? Shout out to our clients. There's people I'm over here reaching out to on LinkedIn. Hey, can we connect? I'd love to talk to you about what living corporate is doing in month one by month three, that role that they just got brought into has been eliminated. That's happening left and right. But you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, you look in the market, you see there's layoffs happening left and right. You're looking and you know that a lot of organizations are reactive. They just, they, it's monkey see, monkey do, right? So if I were you, I would interrogate how you could pivot into an HR operation troll, how you could pivot into um, some type of like uh, people role, some type of employee role, employee experience role, like the the DEI space it's it's contracting, and it's shifting in a way that, um, and and contracting in a very aggressive way, and most most likely, uh, there won't be leaders who are going to be able to stand up against the vitriol that's going to come or the pressures. They'd much rather just not have the headache and just cut the rope, right? You're not that important. So they're going. So what I'm saying is like, the first thing I would do unless you have a guarantee in writing that your role is safe for the next calendar year, start looking for new opportunities. And they're not going to give you a guarantee in writing that your job is safe. So just keep your head on the swivel. That's all I'm saying. Now, now I'm about to talk to though, the people who are in positions of legitimate power, not chief officers now who are really just directors. Okay. Let me say it again. People, those who are in positions of legitimate power, not chief officers who are not actually chief officers. Okay. I'm talking about the people who actually make the senior decisions. Okay. This is not the time to try to relitigate the business case for diversity. Okay. We have tons of data. We have the business case for diversity. Like if you Google business case for diversity, you're going to get like a hundred websites, <laughs> tons of PDFs. The research is there. Okay. We know that more diverse teams lead to more innovative outcomes, which lead to um, a differentiated market experience. We know that the world of work is getting more diverse and the future is going to be drastically more black, brown, and openly queer than ever before. Okay. We, we know um, that, that pay inequity exists by ethnicity and gender and, and generational cohort. Like we, we know, we know these things. So don't try to convince people who've made up their minds about this work being valuable or not. Right. Engaging um, a bad faith conversation in good faith is still bad. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying it again. Engaging a bad faith conversation in good faith is still bad. Um, you, your job is going away. I'm, I'm telling you something. I mean, I'm not the Grim Reaper. I'm, I'm this is still Zach, baby. Zach, live a corporate. What's going on? So I'm just telling you, 
your job is going away. Your job is, 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 is going away. Now, how it goes away. And again, I'm talking to the executives, right? Talking to, talking to the real executives, <laughs> your job is going away. How it goes away. Um, you may be able to influence, right? Either your job is going away and C- the CHRO is just going to absorb your job and that'll be that. Or, uh, your job is going to need to pivot. I would recommend that you shift whatever your focus is, um, whatever you're doing to this. I want you to hear me. Hear me. Watch this. Here we go. Focus on creating a fair employee experience. Focus on creating a fair employee experience. How do you create fair employee experiences? Well, you do a, a you do a bunch of stuff, right? But let me tell you what you don't do. Uh, uh, Black History Month luncheons, cultural parties, and uh, defining unconscious bias and racism and why saying the N-word is bad. You don't have to do those things at all to create um, a fair employee experience. You don't have to uh, do a book club, right, to create a fair employee experience. You don't have to uh, tell white people that they're bad (laughs) to create a fair employee experience. Uh, What you want to do is you want to bring in some vendors. So what you do is you, if you can take the budget from those things and apply it to some partners who can help you, um, analyze the landscape of your company, right? So a deep organizational assessment analysis, actually taking your organizational data, uh, your people data, like all your benefits usage, your, uh, the election, all their benefits elections, uh, as well as, uh, all of your customer experience data, right? So whatever CX data you have, um, whatever your, uh, what's the word, your, um, the, the client data you have in terms of the, the client, like your customer data in terms of not just customer experience, but like your actual customers, like your analysis, who you're trying to reach, like all of that data, any data from your employees to any data on how you're engaging the market, as well as your customers, taking that data and analyzing it. So you can understand what the business is actually like reviewing your policies and procedures on how you actually handle employees. How do you hire? How do you fire? How do you retain? How do you promote? How do you reward? How do you discipline? Now, I know a lot of y'all going to be saying, I, I mean, we do that already. Y'all don't really be doing it like that. Now, look, I've come from big four consulting. I've, I've been in a lot of y'all's companies. Y'all don't really do it like that. I'm talking about a genuine forensic deep dive into all these things with the goal of making the experience as fair as possible. You want to review your talent management strategy. You want to, you want to create career pathways and learning enrichment experiences. Again, not learning about, um, the history of slavery at your job, not even learning about why police brutality is bad at your job, not learning about any of that. I'm talking about career learning enrichment experiences, like how, like give, create experiences to make someone's job better. That right when they start their day and they end their day, maybe they've learned something and they've they've walked away feeling like they delivered value back to your to your organization. Um, reverse mentorship programs, right? Sponsorship programs. See, these are things that actually help the organization improve, y'all. I know it's like radically different than like what a lot of us have been um, championed to do, but what I'm describing are things that actually make the company better. Um. You need to over-communicate this value proposition. And that value proposition is in attracting and retaining talent. I know 
that a lot of you don't even have access to your HR data, right? So you're going to have to work with your people to even get all these different data sets because people be real territorial and funny acting. You're going to have to get buy-in from your from your from your C-suite leadership, really from your CEO, right? But if you want to actually keep a job and stay relevant in this market as folks are throwing darts and arrows and whatever else at this space, you're going to have to show up and think differently about this space. You just are. You just are. Um, And all the awareness and the affinity stuff that you were looking to achieve, um, it'll happen as more folks are engaged with what they were paid to do, which is their jobs, right? Notice that all the things I said are things that they would do in the nature and the the, the flow of their jobs. Uh, Lastly, as you're doing all the stuff I said, you need to be building relationships with um, uh, the P&L owners at your, at your organization, right? Like the people who actually control the business because your larger goal should not just be uh, to create fair employee experience that attracts and retains talent, but there needs to be uh, a larger narrative that you're able to paint of how the work that you're doing to create a fair, um, equitable, it's another word for, I would say fair, right? Let's just keep it at fair because equity will be scaring y'all. So let's, let's pretend I didn't say equitable, even though everybody, frankly, we all like things being equitable, but that's fine. Um, (laughs) As you're building a healthy employee experience, that that healthy employee experience helps to drive a powerful customer experience, right? It's very rare that an employee who feels disrespected, who feels like they're being treated unfairly at their job is going to serve uh, their market as best as they can. So you're going to need data from your customers and the market, and you're going to need to be able to then uh, cross-reference that data in an intersectional way and visualize it in a way that makes it obvious that, hey, powerful employee experience drives powerful customer experience. And for that, you're going to need buy-in from these P&L owners. You're going to need to build relationships with folks that you maybe didn't necessarily engage as aggressively as you did before. Again, I'm talking about these senior leaders. I'm not, no pressure if you're like a director or you're a manager or you're just like a, like a project lead. I'm talking to the senior executive. I'm talking about what's actually going to keep this space relevant and engaged. And honestly, maybe in all this, in this work in this space, your title and your function, your title changes. But I think that's okay. I think that's okay. And as scary as this is, I'm going to, I'm going to dare be optimistic and say, um, this could be a moment for actual growth. It reminds me of the story my dad told me. Um, my dad talked to me one time. He was telling me about how, um, there was a, there was a bird on the side of the road and the bird was, um, he fell out the mother's nest. Okay. Fell out the mother's nest. And, um, and a, and a, and a, a cow walked by and it pooped on the bird, right? It pooped on the bird. And you're like, Oh my gosh, the, Oh my gosh, the, the bird, like, you know, what's going on. But you know, it's interesting. Cause that poop, the sun dried the outside of the poop. And then the bird was actually able to eat the poop and get bigger and get stronger and survive. Right? So that time comes the poop, you know, goes away. The bird is still there, but he's moving around a little bit better. Cause, and he's not, and, and the bird didn't get ravaged by the winter. 
my dad, I don't know. My, I, don't, I know that this is not how like biology, you know, whatever nature works, but it's my dad's story. You know, dad's be telling stories. I tell my children stories now. Well, I will be telling them. I mean, Emery's like three, mine's one. But as soon as they get a little bit older, I'm gonna be telling them crazy stories like this too. Because there's this a moral in here. Just stay, stay with me now. Uh, so the bird is now out of the poop, right? And a wolf comes by. And the wolf licks at the bird and, you know, kind of looks at the bird. The wolf eats the bird. So what am I trying to say? I'm saying sometimes <laughs> my dad's point, moral narrative of the story is sometimes the things that uh, make are meant to make us feel bad might actually be there to help us, right? Depending on how we position ourselves. And sometimes the things that make momentarily feel good aren't actually there for us or for our benefit at all. So I believe there's an opportunity for us to maximize this moment and turn it into something to help us grow. Now, um, I say all this also to say like the work I just mentioned, like, and like how we think about connecting these different experiences from employee experience, to customer experience, the, um, the, uh, the program, the programs I recommended, the analysis, um, different and more, um, uh, differentiated training and continuous learning experiences. These are all things that Living Corporate is focused on. So I know back in 2018, we started as a single podcast. We're now an experienced management firm. That's what we are. And so we're really focused on supporting organizations, just helping them operate more fairly in the market and with their employees. And we do that in a variety of ways. I want to shout out a ton of brands um, that that we've worked with, that we are working with. I'm thankful for all of you. I'm excited about this space and this work. And, um, you know, if you're interested in like supporting us as we honor that mission, like you can click the link in the show notes and learn more about living corporate and the work that we're doing and some of the super dope brands we're working with. Now, (laughs) with all that being said, I got more news. I got more news. I got more news. Look, we're about to start having ads on the pod. I know, I know, I know, but our team is growing and we are a business, right? So we're about to start having ads all on the pod. However, um, I still, we still want to deliver an ad free experience. If you, so if that's what you want, so we'll be delivering that, but on our Patreon. Okay. Um, it's a dollar a month to get in. Now you can give more than a dollar, but it's a dollar a month to get in. You get, uh, no ads. You get, um, you get uh, bonus content, exclusive content, giveaways, merch discounts, uh, special events, a dollar a month gets you in. So that's $12 a year. $12 a year gets you this content ad free every year. Okay. Um, and if you'd like to be a Patreon member, then click the link in the show notes. I'd love to have you be a member today. Um, we're going to have a really good time over there. So I'd love to see you. Okay. Now, um, I know that was a lot. <laughs> Maybe even seeing me is a lot, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like y'all don't typically experience me like this, but I'm here. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm excited about today's conversation with Dr. Maisha Gray Diggs, um, over at Eventbrite. We had a phenomenal dialogue. I want to make sure y'all check it out. And the next thing you hear is going to be Dr. Maisha Gray Diggs. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Dr. Maisha Gray Diggs. Welcome. It's an honor to have you here. How you doing? Good morning. How are you? You know what? I am. You know what? I'm holding a lot of things. You know, let, let, let's 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 be. You know, our, our tagline at Living Corporate is "Real Talk in a Corporate World." I'm holding a lot of things. Um, I guess 
you know what? I, I look, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a founder. I'm a black man. I'm looking out this landscape. You know, I'm trying, I'm grappling through a lot of different things right now. I'm curious, like, how are you doing in this moment? Right? Like off mic for a second, we kind of talked about what the world is as it is. Like, what are you holding in this moment? Um, considering all of who, who you are and the, the, the work that you serve. Yes. No. So first let me thank you for making time and space to chat with me. And so for just ease, I'm happy to go by Maisha or MGD, whichever is easier. Um, but I will say that that's a heavy question and I really do appreciate you asking. I think so many times leaders don't get asked, how are you doing? So let me thank you for that, for starting there. Um, folks who know, know that it's been a very busy year. <laughs> I'm glad to see 2023 go for a lot of reasons. But professionally, my team had some amazing wins, right? We've hired, I've been at Eventbrite uh, about two and a half years, and we've hired our 900th plus person in my two and a half years. So we've, we've done a lot of hiring. Um, and then I added the DEI and employee experience pieces to my remit in May. And so we hit the ground running with phenomenal programming for our diverse employees and allies. So like work was never a dull moment. It was busy. But then personally, I wrote an article um, for Diverse Women Media, I want to say sometime this summer, talking about what it's been like to be a sandwich caregiver. You know, I've been momming my teenage twins and anybody that has teenagers. Those are the things that people don't tell you at the baby shower. When they tell you how cute the baby is and sleepless nights, they don't tell you that the babies become teenagers. And oh, I don't know if I'm prepared, but I'm momming teenagers. And I'm also supporting my mother who's had some health challenges this year. So 2023 has been a lot, a lot of change and a lot of things in motion. And so I look forward to the holidays where everybody's on rest. Everybody is moving at a slower pace. And I really get some time to recover and, and release and relate and really to watch some of my favorite holiday movies and listen to the whispers and SWV Christmas album on repeat. <laughs> Come on now. Okay. Now so you, have, you said a bunch of stuff. So first of all, shout out to you having twins, twin, t- twin teens. So here's the thing. Uh, uh, MGD, like I have two daughters. One of them's three. She turned 13 any day. And then I got a, then I got a, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And then I got this, uh, <laughs> then I got this 13 month old who is, who's pretty advanced, right? And I'm going to tell you, it's so funny seeing them little. And I'm like, okay, so I need to up my therapy sessions for you. And I need to make sure I'm prepared for you because y'all are going to be different, right? I'm curious, like to your point about the baby shot, no one tell you that they were, that they turned into teenagers. At what point did you realize, okay, Hey, this parenting thing is real. Cause I feel like I'm still now, of course I'm in like, I'm still in this, like, you know, potty training, you know, making sure they eating, um, you know, enough, uh, fruits and stuff like that. But, but you know, they're still mostly at the house, you know, they, they haven't really engaged the full world yet. Like, do you feel like there was a, a phase in your parenting where you were like, whoa, wait a minute. This is like, this is different, different. I, these is, I'm really out here. Yeah. Third grade. Third grade tends to be the time for especially black children where you excel or you fall back. So third grade was really the year that both of them stepped into their greatness, which happened to be the same time that COVID happened. Right. These are children that spent 
18 plus months at home. I was running a one room schoolhouse and I realized that these new kids were just built different. <laughs> and COVID taught us that the teachers weren't ready, the parents weren't ready. But I think that third grade year was overlapped with the COVID year. I realized how strong and resilient and just how smart they were. They like new technology. And this is probably not a good thing, but I remember when they were ejecting the teacher that the third graders were from the Zoom from the Zoom and the Google Meets. And she was saying, I think I need to call Comcast to get my internet fixed. And I was like, no, lady, we just need the discipline. So one time they kicked her out and I went in there and I said, don't throw her out no more. And I like, don't throw that lady out no more. And all the parents started texting me. They were like... It, well, it is them. I'm like, it is. And that's when I knew that these kids were, are you smarter than a third grader? And every year I ask myself, am I smarter than whatever grade they're in? So now seventh grade is where the social is like a different social dynamic. And they really are learning about just what's happening in the world, you know, about race and critical race theory and how they stack up. It's been, it's been amazing to watch and live and support in the work that I do these two little forces of nature. Wow. That's, that's a beautiful thing. And I'm going to keep that. In. I'm, I'm taking little notes on the side, third grade, because my three-year-old already trying to talk to me, trying to negotiate and have these long comments. I'm like, what are you talking about? If you don't, please grab those fruit snacks so we can get in this car and go to daycare. Um, so, you know, I'm always honored and excited to have folks on Living Corporate. Everyone comes with their own unique background. You are a talent executive at one of the largest event coordination management platforms in the world. Um, but you didn't start as a t- in the talent HR people space. Why the pivot from STEM into the, the larger people experience work that you do today? I tell people that um, HR chose me. I didn't choose it, right? I am a classically trained engineer from MIT, PhD from Northwestern. But I always dip my toe into recruiting related activities. I mean, it started here in the Bay Area at the high school I went to, hosting recruiting events, trying to get more people that look like me in that space. You know, when I graduated from high school here in San Francisco, there were five black kids in my class of 242. So it was in me and I didn't know it was in me to diversify spaces and places. But by the time I got to graduate school at Northwestern, I was doing that work, helping my advisor, who was the dean, gave me some money, set up time at the Nesby conference again to recruit more black and brown graduate students. And when P&G pulled me out of a full-time R&D role, making diapers and doing um, analytical test methods for beauty products and said, we want you to lead you know, PhD recruiting full time as a broadening assignment, I was like, why not? And that came to be the best three years of my career is the time I spent in talent acquisition, hands down. And I always said to myself, if I could go back to doing it full time, P&G sent me back to R&D to make some more diapers. I said I would do it. And so when Microsoft offered me the opportunity to do it, I jumped at it. Like it was, I knew that I wanted to be in tech and I wanted to shake it up. That's incredible. Um, and you know, I, to your, to your, your port, your point about like just your educational background. One thing that I've picked up um, in my career is like just the principle of being a systems thinker, right? Like, um, and I got a lot of coaching on that earlier in my career, especially as in my, my consulting days when I was, 
uh, consulting across like PwC, Accenture, Capgemini, a lot, a lot of culture. People tell, hey, you need to read this book on systems thinking. Like, Zach, stop thinking so transactionally. This thing, like, look and understand like what's happening beyond this moment or this particular interaction or transaction. Um, I believe systems thinking is like a rare skill set asset in corporate spaces, especially within like the people experience space, which is HR talent management space. Can we talk about ways that your your STEM, your engineering background, your research background helps to inform your approach in building a culture of inclusion and fairness at Eventbrite? It's uh, it's my secret weapon, I think, in the talent management space. But I think with that, it's a blessing and a curse. Right. You you started to allude to some of what you get from systems thinking, but I get things fast. I see around corners. I connect dots. Right. And that, that's systems thinking. You know, I'm thinking big before I really hone in on how to solve that problem. But I think the curse part of that is that in an HR space, they're just trained differently, right? So I get feedback sometimes that I don't bring people along on the journey. And so I've had to adopt a, a compensating behavior to intentionally slow down. And, and I don't, I have to do it in a way that doesn't make people feel that I'm playing down on their abilities, but I just know what systems thinking is. Like, I got it. I'm already, okay, blah, 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 moving fast. Um, and I spent time in upstream innovation, right? So my job at both P&G and Clorox was to do small, quick pilots, to fail fast, learn early, um, try things, fail. Like, I got paid to fail. And you don't get that a lot in corporate environments. And so that's what I bring to my talent work. Right. I, we, we run a lot of pilots. You know, I like to start small before I roll out to, to large groups. I want to make sure we tweak and we refine that we don't just have a V1. We have a V2, a V3, because we're constantly learning as we implement and roll things out. Um, I think the data I, and the insights goes without saying, like, I love data. I love insights. And I think you get that from engineering, right? We, we love numbers, facts, and evidence. We're always trying to prove the hypothesis and confirm the hypothesis. So I love that. And I think my time at P&G Clorox on the more technical side that I brought to the HR side has been around innovation and being first to market with your product and truly taking risks. I mean, you know, some of these these products, when you're going up against your competitors, other big companies, you know, there's some risk involved in this. You don't always know. And I think in the DEI and the employee experience space, the work requires some risk and frankly, some resilience. <laughs> so um, I'd like to spend time understanding what we're operating with when I come into a new environment to think about what challenging problems I get to go solve. Right. I don't like to really do turnkey. You know, like if you just gave me something cooked, I'm still going to ask some questions. Why, why, why is this? Why is that? Um, and I think that comes from um, the systems thinking piece. Um, let me think other ways that I think, you know, we've done this. You know, if you think about the role that I have, I started with just a talent acquisition role here at Eventbrite. But really thinking about end to end where we need to apply um, change to build a diverse workforce, right? Like I believe that we have one of the best diverse slates initiatives in the business. Um, it was very similar to what we rolled out at Twitter and the numbers speak for themselves. So if you spent time with what was the Blackbirds, the Blackbirds weren't the Blackbirds when I got there in um, 2019. There was one Black engineering manager. Um, by the time that I left, there were a whole lot more. And that was because we really had the process and processes in place to think about how do we make underrepresented folks 
want to apply, right? How do we make sure that hiring managers understand their own biases in the hiring process to be welcoming and inclusive and really screening in talent? Um, and then, like I said, we the numbers speak for themselves when you look at what Eventbrite looks like now as we think about having a measurable, fair process just to make sure that we are considering all candidates throughout the process and get the most um, diverse slate at the end. Um, so those are some of the ways that we think about this. I also think about when I picked up the employee experience side of this, again, really looking at kind of that back half of the employee life cycle and where is there an opportunity for us to, to get leaders to help build their cultural competency muscles, right? To think about how we do things differently for employees who, who were different than, you know, they may have been our employee population looked different from 2020 to now, you know, so how do we make sure folks from diverse backgrounds feel valued and able to do their best at work? I think that's where, that's the hard part, really. I think we can hire. I think we've dispelled the myth that the pipeline isn't there. I think the hard work um, that we have to do um, in these spaces is really the inclusion piece. How do we make people feel included? And so I, I appreciate, I, I will give a shout out every day to employee resource groups at every company because they really do that grassroots work to foster an inclusive culture. And, and the same is here at Eventbrite. We can't do what we do with the lean DEI team without those folks volunteering their time. And then you mentioned some of the consulting companies you've been at, but they've done a great job of sharing some of their programs with us. And so we have folks in McKinsey's Connected Leadership Academy. We go to professional development conferences tailored to diverse audiences. And so, I mean, we just test and learn. We're, we're testing and learning our way through this. And sometimes we're not successful, <laughs> Zach. We're just, sometimes we get it wrong. And I think that's where that systems thinking comes in that we pivot and try something else first of all you dropped so many doggone uh so many gems in that answer i appreciate you the first thing i want to i want to engage is a hundred percent like i feel you when it comes to the fact that in being a system thinker and connecting the dots and seeing around the corner i've gotten the same feedback hey zach like you need to slow down or hey you need to appreciate that everyone isn't seeing it the same way you are and earlier in my career in my like i know youthful angst mgd i'd be like well <laughs> Why not? Like, it's obvious. <laughs> One plus two equal three. And three is over here after the equal sign, right? But to your point about compensating behaviors, like, first of all, it's obvious to you. It's not obvious to everybody else. To your also point is the your, your, your context, what you're operating from and how you've been trained up, how you're trained to even see this work, how you've been rewarded and, and uh, incentivized to see this work isn't that way. So... You know, being being able to appreciate because seeing a, seeing it, seeing being able to look around the corner is only as helpful as your ability to help other people see with you. If you're the only person seeing around the corner and, and everybody else don't see it, then all you're going to do is be walking around frustrated all the time. So you have to figure out a way to lead and engage people so they can see with you. Um, you know, something else about just the idea of like thinking end to end. It's so interesting and I, I'm, I'm excited about and I'm curious I'm curious to see what the next year or so bring. But when you look at the way the market is going and you're seeing organizations at large, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in our conversation, divest from long-term employee 
retention and like some of the like career ladders that you might have saw like in the early 2000s or late 90s of like hey we're trying to build someone to be here for 7, 8, 12 years like that's not really the same like you're seeing organizations as opposed to going from like these longer multi multi quarter bets or investment it's the shorter cycles and with that employee life cycles might be shortening or accelerating and so like there has to be someone who's thinking systemically about like okay even if we only know this talent's going to be here for 36 months as opposed to 96 months or 72 months, what are we going to do with that talent in this time? And like at the end of that cycle, like what does that really mean when it comes to like when we recruit or we engage before we even try to necessarily send them a job location? Like what is our, how does our brand and our messaging tie back to our talent attraction? And what does the top of the funnel look like for when they actually apply to the role? And then when they get through the process, even if they don't get the job, what does that look like? And, like just all these different questions and like being able to understand how to connect those dots. It's really important. So it's exciting to hear you talk about like how you're looking at all those things come together. I think, I think in my experience so often in my consulting time, and then also like when I pivoted into tech and industry, a lot of those roles were very segmented and uh, siloed and like, yes, they would talk, but there wasn't real true strategic, like, interconnection interdependency um and real like process sharing and or like just linkages that just that, that that isn't that was not my experience and as a consultant we made a lot of money helping people build those links uh they were not always there um yeah you said something and i i like want to make sure we check it a bit i think tech is a different beast than other industries right i think there are industries that are still priding themselves on retaining their talent Right. I think the slow growth companies are all about retention, right? They've got strong internal mobility programs. I mean, the consulting world does. They reta- I mean, those are the places where you're still seeing talent say, I've been here 20 years. You know, I think about I was I'm on a thread with some folks, my accountability group. I call them my personal board of directors. They've seen me at my strongest strong and my weakest week. I told them that next June would have been would have been my 20 year anniversary at Procter and Gamble, but Procter and Gamble couldn't figure out how to let me work remote from California, right? So, you know, it, I would have still had to be Cincinnati based, and that opened up a whole exciting world for me in tech. So, no regrets. Love my time at P and G. It was so formative in developing uh, my career in a very safe, supportive environment. But I think there's still people in Procter and Gamble and Clorox been there 45 years. And you're like 45 years, like Ford. I mean, if I bet if you went to the plant at Ford that you would find somebody in manufacturing who's been there 45 years, been in some of those cities where this is the thing. Like if you work at this company, that's all they have. But I think tech, I mean, we've got to figure out, we have a, a much more immature HR model in a lot of these tech companies. I mean, we don't know if we're going to be here for 15, 30 years, you know, and a lot of us are 17 years old, right? And so you don't have a very mature HR model, nor when you think about how we were startups before, you think about just what startups invest in, they invest in the product, the the, the it. So you see, you get maybe one people person <laughs> that they hire trying to be everything. So the people model and the people philosophies tend to lag um, the product development philosophies for these startups. So I think there are still some places where people stay 45 years. It's just not. Tech. That's fair. That's fair. And actually to your point, shout out to my, uh, my in-laws, uh, my father-in-law, he just retired. 
from being um, being an accountant uh, within the healthcare space. And then uh, my mother-in-law just retired from being at NASA, right, for for decades, right? So 100% received there. I'm thinking more about, to your point, I'm probably putting on my millennial cone and looking at, like, what's happening within these spaces, like not the non-trade spaces, the folks who are looking for that remote job where they can, and people are still really excited about STEM, as they should be. But you're absolutely right. Like, I don't think, and I could be wrong, maybe maybe, maybe uh, the, the head of talent at Ford will come around Living Corporate one day and, and tell me themselves, I don't think Ford is hiring people thinking they're going to be gone the next 24 months. I, I'm, I think people have a different skills uh, focus and there. I think it's the high-risk, high-reward space, right? When you think about tech, it's high-risk, high-reward. And so I think some of what you're seeing now in the market is that people forgot that, that people forgot that the lure of tech was that high risk, high reward, right? When you're getting those stock options, you're getting those bonuses. When companies are going public, there was, there was a whole culture there. This whole startup tech culture is different. It's just different. It's totally different in my Tamar Braxton voice this morning, totally different. I think people forgot that. I mean, they forgot that when we were eating free lunch in the cafeteria, three meals a day, playing ping pong, beer on tap. People forgot that there was another way and that this is not the only way because this was exciting, right? And so as the market has done what it has done and is kind of correcting itself, people have not got out of that fog that that was tech. A hundred percent. And I do recall going to client sites where the kombucha was on tap and they had unlimited breaks and naps. I was like, woo, boy, mm-mm. Yeah, so you're right. It's a, it's a different era for sure. Uh, you know, t- to that end, right? You know, I, I, I've noticed this pattern of, of, and this is now. This is now, now, MGD. I'm over here talking like I've been working for thirty some years. Like I, okay, I'm, I'm 34 years old, but still, that's a that's a decent amount of work experience in my entire career. I've noticed a pattern of folks presuming that employee experience is HR's job or a volunteer's job or the DEI person's job. When in reality, it takes a commitment from executive leaders, their middle managers and frontline leaders. How do you, and how have you built trust equity with your own executive peers to mobilize enterprise buy-in to service of that goal? You know, I think I would start. There's a hacking HR must've been reading your mind this morning. They have a GIF up on their LinkedIn page that talks about culture is everybody's job. It's not just the leaders, it is everybody's job. And I, and I think that's true, right? It's not just the leader's job, it's everybody's job. And I think I came in very quickly wherever and make sure that everybody understands it's everybody's job. Um, because the reality is your leader is your leader, but you work most closely with these people, right? The, it may be the frontline folks, it may be middle, the middle level folks, but you work with the group that isn't always your leader. So leaders do, please, I don't want people to think I'm discounting that leaders don't play a role, execs don't play a role. But I think we find sometimes that if it's only top down, it it, it hasn't really kind of gotten to the um, scenes of the place, so to speak. It's not really built into the DNA. And so that's one of the, the first things that I like to get established with people is that it's everybody's job. And I think for me, um, Again, part of that systems thinking you talked about is I'd love to tease out organizational readiness, right? Because I think about companies are all at different phases on their journey in terms of being ready for things. And I think 
2020 did a lot for us, Zach, in terms of when we went hybrid, we went remote, what, what we thought was culture wasn't culture. You know, what we thought was important to people wasn't important to people. And I think 2023, fast forward to today, heading into 2024, there's a little bit of a tug of war, um, a lot because leaders and companies have to redefine what that company culture is, right? It isn't, you know, a lot of times, and I, I talk to real estate workplace people, the building, the amenities, that the, the office was the anchor for culture, right? And you would see it at a company where like the Dallas office would have a different culture than the London office, but it all anchored around that building. I think remote work through a monkey wrench for all of us. We're like still kind of spiraling, trying to figure out how to rebuild culture. And I tell people it's not easy work, right? So part of where the trust equity I think came in for me with the leaders at Eventbrite is one, I'm very passionate about it, that that's important, right? That they know it matters to me and I know it matters to them. So we think about organizational readiness. I think the other piece of this is we don't have one size fits all, right? Because our organization in Spain operates different than Argentina, Australia, than Nashville, Tennessee, right? And so how do we give leaders options on how they deliver that desired employee experience? Um, I think is important, right? Because employees aren't a monolith the same way people say well you can't speak for all black people you're absolutely right i can't speak for all black people i can't speak for all black women i think the same thing is that one thing is not right for all employees so we have to think about how we as leaders tailor those employee experiences that we deliver um, and i think the trust equity comes in a little bit as well from the authenticity and transparency i think People love it. They love to see me working. I'll roll my sleeves up with my team. I'll roll my sleeves up with them, even where it may or may not be what I think is my job or they think, but I'm happy to help and partner. And I think that helps build a lot of trust with other leaders that I'm willing to help and not judge, right? Because it's very easy to say, leader A, you're not doing this. Leader B, you're not doing this. Nope, I just want to see it be better. And so I'm, I'm willing to partner with them to make it happen. I love that. And you're absolutely right. Like so often in like change management and like org transformation work, you know, there's this work that happens where it's like, okay, you communicate with the C-suite folks and they're going to communicate down to a certain extent. Cause that message is only going to drip so far. And then you're going to build some level of like kind of grassroots organization at the bottom and they're going to then communicate it up. But oftentimes it's that mid-level manager space that like neither one, neither fully grasp and like when you think about really the folks who really run the business of any organization it doesn't matter it's those folks it's the mid-level managers right the man 80 80 percent of people report to the middle level it's that right? middle yeah 80 80 percent of the company reports to that middle level and you know you think 20 percent is typically exec level that you gotta have that mean middle as i call them you need their buy-in you can get a lot i mean <laughs> Or like there's been mid-level managers can be the source of so much acceleration and progress. And also the so many thorns in the side because they can, they, they have so much influence and just functional authority that if they organize, there's so many things that can happen. So 100% received there. Um, I love that. You know, as a senior executive, we got, we've been, we've been kind of talking around this a little bit. I want to hear more about your perspective on the, the, the employee landscape today. You know, recently MGD, 
I messed around and went viral on mistake. You know what I'm saying? I went on LinkedIn and on Twitter, <laughs> right? Now I've gone, I've gone viral on Twitter twice this year. One, because I asked a question about a very popular uh, black tech conference about like what the actual motive is. And that went, that went everywhere. I was like, well, I really not think y'all was gonna pay attention to me like that. The second time I was talking about though, um, the reality of this landscape today with layoffs. And I talked about, you know, last around this time last year, last October, two days before my paternity leave was scheduled to start, I got laid off uh, as a part of 11, 11% headcount reduction uh, when I was working as um, as a DEI leader and a head of go-to-market strategy at SurveyMonkey. And I was talking and I was sharing a thread to empathize with folks who are in this season right before the Christmas holiday dealing with and trying to navigate what it means to like go through this. Right. Um, I'd love to get your perspective, you know, with, with these layoffs happening left and right. And frankly, there's a pattern of layoffs happening in the fourth quarter. Um, I believe a lot of folks, especially marginalized talent, they're disillusioned with the idea of investing with a company and growing long-term. Um, what is your point of view on that, on this landscape and the potential disillusionment? And then what are ways you're building trust and engagement at Eventbrite? So first, I want to say that as we've even seen layoffs last week, right, they're still coming as you talked about Q4. It hurts my heart um, as a leader. Um, and I have to kind of pace my LinkedIn posts um, because while we are hiring, you know, for very critical roles that we need to drive the business, I have to try to balance where so it doesn't feel braggadocious, right, that we're like, Nan, 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 we're still hiring because I also read what feels like the LinkedIn job obituary where people are still being laid off, people are losing their homes and, and children are suffering. So I try to balance both. So I do want to tell people that I see them. And um, one of the things just personally as a talent leader, we're trying to do is um, outsource in a more smaller way to, to get folks to help, right? So um, we could bring in like a big RPO, we could, you know, do, but we are going really grassroots. So I also went viral recently looking for an admin coordinator to support my team. And I just did it grassroots in LinkedIn, right, versus sending it out and accept. So again, I'm trying to see people where they are. So I first want to say that because I constantly every day kind of check myself before I post something like, is this okay to post? Will this be received? I, I know that people are struggling in this time and in this season. So I do want to tell people, I see you. Um, I'm here to support. Um, folks know that my DMs are open and I have spent a lot of time helping folks and I'm happy to continue in this season um, of change and transition. But I do think this is a wonderful time for laid off folks to get the setup for the comeback. So I, I think about reskilling and other skills that you may want to have that you haven't. And so um, off track, but I did want to say that. But I think about these last, let's say, two years, and you talked about marginalized folks um, investing in companies. And I think, I don't know if I have the right word around the dynamic shifting, kind of the pendulum swinging, where there was a point where we were giving everything to employees. I mean, landing talent was so hard. It really was the buyer's market. And now the pendulum has shifted with the layoffs to a seller's market where the companies kind of have the power. We're not kind of seeing the prices and the offers going up and, and kind of the gouging that we were seeing. Um, so that's happening. I think there's been that pendulum shift. 
And I think when we saw people leaving us, if you think about two years ago in three months, I mean, there was a time where if you had a short tenure at a company, people would say, why'd you leave? There was a point where didn't nobody ask because we were just trying to grab as much talent that we needed. And so we didn't care if you had only been somewhere six months. And then on the talent side, it was like, instead of feeling like you needed to wait and give people a chance to do better at the first sign of do wrong, you were like, I'm out. And so there was a point where I was like, that person is gone already. Like, you know, it really, I mean, so you can just see from both sides of it, the power dynamic, right? The, the shifting in kind of what was going on. And I think companies weren't growing people, right? We, cause they were like, you're gonna, we're gonna invest in programs and you're gonna be gone. And we won't have those folks. They were staying 18 to 24 months, if that. That was where we were like three years ago, two and two years, 18 months ago. It was like, if you got a year, I mean, I'm sure companies looked at their year one attrition was awful because people were just like, I'm out. And so I think about we're now back at that place where people are evaluating um, and seeing career growth as a benefit, right? Because if you look at us, one, we're not in office, a lot of companies, so who cares about free lunch? People aren't commuting because they, they have some flexibility there. Career growth is like the next big, I think, thing, benefit that companies have to be able to articulate and, and demonstrate to employees that they're going to give them, whether it's even if I'm here six months or a year, how are you going to upskill me for the next thing? And and for me, it's how are we going to upskill you to keep you here? Because we, we're going to continue to give you those growth and development opportunities, the stretch, so to speak. So I think that's one of the things that I'm excited about, our new talent management, true talent management leader, talent and org development leader that has come in to really help us plan for the organization, to give them not only manager managers help build their capability, but also employees. But I think you've said something in the question around marginalized employees. And I want to say that um, I don't know if marginalized employees are disillusioned. I actually think the employees who were marginalized always had their head on a swivel. Like I always feel like we were kind of low trust of these environments, you know, you you think about some of the cultural archetype stuff that we brought from home. You know, your mom and daddy tell you don't be letting these folks in your business, mm -hmm. and you have safe topics that you share. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we would just believe in a hype. I mean, we, you know, when I read a lot of the articles about women and people of color being disproportionately affected by layoffs, I felt that black folks were just black and brown not folks were like we expected yeah, to be. Yeah, so that's why I'm like. That's why when I heard the question, I was like, I don't know about that because I feel like even as an executive, I feel like my head's on the swivel too. You know, I'm kind of checking it out. And I remember one time I had an intern at, for me at Procter & Gamble. I was her buddy early in my career. The young lady came from Akron. And she said when she got there, she wouldn't come in and wouldn't talk to nobody. And her manager said to me, I don't understand what's happening. I said, well, let me figure out. So I took her out to lunch. And I said, hey, um, they tell me that you come to work every day and you don't say hi to anybody. She said, uh-uh, I don't because I'm still casing the place. I said, casing the place? I said, man, <laughs> what do you mean casing the place? She said, I don't know yet if I like the, the feel of this place, right? So I think there are things that we like, even though the numbers may be there, the culture may be there, I think we still, marginalized folks are still 
checking things out. You know, I would argue that as I look at the LinkedIn job obituaries, I think folks who have been in a place of privilege have taken these layoffs really hard, hard, really hard. hard. Right? And I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm like, I read some of this stuff, and it's just like, oh, oh, it's my. like, it's like, like they, it's like real, so, like real grief. Oh no, no, yeah. So when you talked about the marginalized folks being disillusioned. I think folks that had been in a place of privilege and power and had access are just devastated more so than the marginalized folks who are like, we expected it. And there's a little bit of how even you talked about your story. We grow up with a little hustle, hustle mentality. I brought in recently a speaker to meet with my team, ex-professional football player, Lenny Walls. And he talked about Um, He has a tattoo on his hand. He played for the Denver Broncos, Kansas City Chiefs. And on his hand, it said hustle is entertainment. Because he talked about how he gets up before folks to make it and stay in the NFL 10 plus years. You got to outwork folks. And so he had always had that. I need to work hard and I have multiple streams of income and I'm going to have my hustles. Right. So he was a football player. He has fitness business. He is a nonprofit. Like he he is real estate mogul. So he knew. And my team was like, wow. And so he blessed us in a way we weren't prepared for. Um, but talked about that hustle mentality. And I think black and brown folks need not forget that mama and grandmama and big mama and abuela taught us those things. We watched many times our parents worked multiple jobs, didn't have all the eggs in one basket. And I think there's some things that that taught us that we can learn and bring that on back, you know? No, a hundred percent. And you know what, to that point, cause I know when I shared there, people like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, listen, I, I, I got a new gig like six days later. And Living corporate is my, at the time was like my, really my second full-time job, but I was, I was fine. Right. I think it was because, but until your point, because of background and because of what I've been coached and trained up to do, I always knew kind of like, Hey, just, be, just in case. So I re- I receive your skepticism on the word, um, disillusion. I think that a lot of us do keep our on the swivel, but some of us in GD, do not, you know what I'm saying? So, but to that end, <laughs> to the- well, I hope that I hope that the last two years have helped folks think about the employee value equation has changed on both sides, right? What you as an employee are expecting and willing to give. And I think I really applaud the Gen Z folks too, right? So you talk about, I mean, that's a different diverse group that we're trying to learn how to service, but they're very clear on their employee value proposition, the employee value equation, what they will and will not do. Shout out to the young folks because they're very clear on their boundaries and we got to respect them, right? Because they're about to be the most, the largest group um, in the workforce. And so I will say that they, there's a lot to learn from them because they are very clear. Listen, we, that's, it's, <laughs> listen, it's, it's like, you know what I'm about to ask, you know, cause we go in there next. Now, before I do that, let me give you some flowers in real time. You know, I want everybody to stop Uh sound man in the background. You might be having some music. Stop everybody. Stop the music. Stop everything. Just, it should just be my voice right now. Pay attention. You hear how MGD, she said, Hey, I'm going to empathize with people going through things right now, even though she sits in this very senior executive position and she could be getting her profile up and getting clicks up and getting views up. She's thoughtful about the things that she posts online as a senior executive. She's not trying to be no DEI celebrity. You know what I'm saying? Shout out to that. Maybe some of y'all 
take note of that. You know, think, be thoughtful about what you're doing. You actually impact other people. It's not just about enhancing your profile or your image or your look. And be thoughtful and mindful of using your power and your privilege and your access to help people that actually need it. You hear her? She said she went and looked into LinkedIn. MGD, sometimes I got to do this and like really slow it down because folks really listen. They try to learn. So I want to make sure that they didn't miss the lesson. You know, sometimes they'll be like, you'll get that on your way home. I want people to get it right now where they're driving. You know what I'm saying? So, all right, back to this. Now, here, here's the thing. Here's to <laughs> absolutely. Here's the thing. Staying on talent. I want to, I do want to talk about these two generational cohorts, millennials and Gen Zers, right? Millennials are the largest, currently the largest population of worker with Gen Zers growing every day. And they're going to soon be the largest population in the workforce from a generational cohort perspective. I think a lot of times folks are complaining about millennials and they really think, and they're really talking about Gen Zers. I think a lot of folks still think millennials are like 22. There's millennials who are 40 now. Uh, shoot, I'm, again, I'm a millennial. I'm 34. I have two children and two homes, right? So like, you know, there, there's there's younger people than that, right? I think it's important for people to keep that in mind as well. Again, that's me slowing down a little bit, uh, MGD. So the first question I have for you re- related to this whole generational conversation, do you believe the general, you kind of alluded to this already, but I want to hear you unpack a little bit further. Do you believe the general talent succession strategy we're seeing in organizations is sufficient enough today to build the next wave of executive leadership? You know, do we have true talent succession strategies, right? Like I think about, especially in the faster paced environments. I mean, I think we've lost our way. I think in some of the slower growth companies, you still see those conversations being had about um, succession planning. I think about early in my career, I saw so much coaching, mentoring and sponsorship happen and fast tracking employees and kind of picking them and seeing something in them. I don't know if we have even the time or have taken the time to slow down and look at folks, right? Like, I think there's a fear right now from the old heads that the young folks are going to sit us and put us out the pasture, you know? And so we're not doing that kind of lifting as we climb and mentoring and sponsoring and learning from them, right? Like I'll take some Gen Z millennial people they're going to get my TikTok game all the way up, you know, and I, I'm doing a little bit. I've got those teenagers. They working on my TikTok game because that's where I got to do better. <laughs> but I think we can't be afraid to learn from them. And one of the things that I'm very um, cognizant of is that I think that if we don't invest and create a safe space for Gen Z and millennial in corporate, right, in-house, we're going to have more entrepreneurs, right? Because they're going to say, I'm 25. I can do my own thing. I can set my hours. I can go get this venture capital money. I think you see it. Shout out to Rob Gordon at Black VC. He's trying to get more of us thinking about that, about doing our own thing. And I think when you think about that, I can be 25 and be the boss. I think you're going to be less tolerant for um, the gates and the ceilings that are in place. So I do think we have to rethink from a corporate standpoint how do we retain that talent? Because we know we need them, right? And one of the things I, I kind of, that juxtaposed for me is that Carolyn Wonga is the CEO of Essence Communication. She was at Target, led their DEI. Um, she's got a wonderful talk that she does about how companies should become a CEO factory. 
rather than being a place that no one ever wants to leave, right? And so I think about how do we think about that, especially with these folks that have these great ideas, if you don't allow the Gen Z and the millennials to have their voice heard, they're going to peace out on you, and then you're going to have big gaps. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I think if you look at org structure, and I'm a big org design, org structure kind of guru, that's where I tell people I'm fake HR. I kind of get in there, and I... You see a lot of senior leaders managing very junior people. And that's because this middle level, a lot of millennials have been like, I don't see the career path for me. You all are stifling me. I'm gonna catch you, you know, on the next round. And they're doing their own thing. There, there, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. I think if you look at the growth of that segment, I think you're gonna see a lot of millennials and Gen Zs. I think it's been de-risked, especially for black and brown people a little bit. It's been de-risked to go do your own thing. Listen here, uh, I am a poster child of that, especially, and I talk to other folks like in my cohort, right? Especially like if you were able to accelerate early and you're able to stack your bread when you were in your mid to late 20s, you're able to take a risk, you're able to do some things. Um, And then, you know, if you find success early, like there are so many people I know who are genuine stars and like, look, man, I gave this 18 months, I gave this 24 months, I gave this three years. This is not where I'm trying to go. And once you're able to see that, hey, there's other options outside of you having to necessarily stay some, you know, but I think to your point, it's like to Miss Wanga's point and yours of like organizations are going to need to have to shift. They're going to need to have to adjust how they think about retaining that talent because, okay, yeah, you can let like one Zach go, but you can't let like a, a hundred Zachs go. Eventually, you're not going to have a company to ha- to manage anymore. And or you're going to have talent that isn't necessarily going to help you differentiate in the market. Right. And so like and that's no shade to nobody. It's just like the way it is, like ideally the people that are being hyper entrepreneurial and trying to build and innovate things and build products or build solutions or build new experiences, build new services. You want that talent close by. Right. I mean, I almost wonder, though, MGD, is it like do you think maybe a middle ground could be? building like having some type of connective tissue with those people, even as they leave and have their own ventures, because I don't know if organizations are going to be able to change radically enough to fully retain that talent. I do think there's possibilities to create some type of like vendor relationship where there's like this vendor contract relationship with that, with that talent population. But I don't know. I don't know if organizations are ready to change enough to really like capture a significant portion of that talent pool in, in the next 10 to 15 years. Well, I think we have a lot, even if you think about the next five, right? So we have all like five different generations in the workforce. You throw in remote and hybrid work and it's like, so now you have that. It's almost like a factorial design of like exponentially we're complicating the problem, right? Because now you have five generations you have this funny, flexible work model, and everybody believes in it differently, right? So the boomers want to see you. <laughs> so they trying to get you in the office. They want to see you. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a lot. And so no, 10 to 15 years, because I don't know what's the next thing that's going to make this exponentially more challenging, um, but it's going to be hard. But I do think, you know, I'd love to see folks that have gone out as consultants come back and bring that, those fresh eyes. I think, we have to figure out how with lean HR teams, 
we keep in touch or even lean business teams, how do you maintain that relationship? I have some folks that work for me in the talent space. Now it's become text. I, hey, I'm checking in, you know, how you doing? I see you did this. One of them, I recently saw her new boss at um, Afrotech and I made a point to go over to the data dog booth and see one of my people's new leaders. And I got to talk to her and she thanked me for still investing in that employee because she's reaping the benefits. But I'm like, yeah, no, absolutely no problem. But how do we multiply that, right? That needs to be multiplicative for how do we keep in touch with, and because that's a mechanism of retention and boomeranging, right? How do we keep in touch with those folks that got away? Um, you know, the 10 percenters. Now, this is a bad analogy. I was telling someone this week, I probably have spent too much time feeling like Nellie and Ashanti are my friends. They're not my friends, but I've spent so much time being <laughs> so happy. Because when I think about like something happened in 10 years that he still was watching how she was moving, she was watching how he was moving and decided we move better together. And I think about that, if that's my pop culture example. As someone asked me to do something, I said, can I just, I need to confirm whether they having a baby and then I'm gonna <laughs> ping you right back. Cause I was so engrossed in that, but I think about it as an analogy for, they were keeping up, that somebody was keeping tabs and that's how you keep the relationship as people leave, right? They stayed friends. How do you stay friends? with those people that you like, there's still something there, those high potential, you know, and keep them in the fold. So I think there's, that may be my a whole business model. You know, we keep talking about the hustle. I think part of it is people don't have time, but if somebody systematized that, we would have more corporate Ashanti and Nellies. Yes, <laughs> spin the block. Spin the block corporate you know, edition. <laughs> 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 Folks gonna be like, it is what the time are these two on the phone talking and she don't talk to them. I'm telling you, I, listen, I just I'm so excited for them, but I just think about that's how crazy my mind works. Maisha, what does Ashanti and Belly have to do with retention? I'm like, this is there's some lessons there's there, some, y'all. And don't give me and we could look now because I I'm a preacher by trade, because there's a connection there about <laughs> how they both also identify they were able to add value back to each other when they got back on that stage too. Anyway, so that's another time. Y'all get that on the way home. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Gray Diggs, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I feel like we could go on forever. Let me, let me, let me, let's land the plane with this. I'm not going to ask you three things. One thing, if you could give executive lead in this moment, right? When you have these political talking heads, you have legislation, you have societal, you have all these different pressures, uh, a lot of them, frankly, in contradiction with each other, making um, workplace fairness um, seeming to be a gray issue. Um, what advice would you give them related to attracting and sustaining their talent? Wow. That's a deep place to end. Um I always tell folks when they're interviewing and I tell my leaders, I tell candidates, you're interviewing us and we're interviewing you. And so by that, I mean, the interview is just not the three, four, five, whatever hours. People are watching you, right? The the candidates are watching, they're checking you out. And so I think one, you have to be a talent magnet, right? And I think what for me that means to be a talent magnet is that you got to do dope, dope shit and win. 
Like, don't nobody want to be on a team that isn't winning, right? The reason that LeBron James can continue to win at every place and attract talent, can get an AD to leave his team, to get a Kyrie, is because he's a talent magnet and he wins. And there's just that vibe you give off. So I think as leaders, we have to invest in how we show up um, for talent. Um, we, We have to. We have to think about how, whether you like LeBron James or not, right? Like, I'm a Steph Curry fan until I die. That's, I'm a Warriors fan, die hard. We believe even before the Nate Thurman days, when I was born a Warriors fan. But you got to be a talent magnet, right? You got a Steph Curry, a LeBron James. When you think about what those folks do, they win. And other people want to be around them because they are just dope and they make people better. So that's what we as leaders have to do is that we have, people have to want to be around us and we got to do dope stuff and win. It's been Dr. Maisha Gray Diggs, head of all types of stuff at Eventbrite. You know what I'm saying? I ain't about to, you know what I mean? Just, just her, she's her over there. You know what I'm saying? And out here. Uh, Also off mic, uh, MGD, you were talking about, you didn't think he was one of the ones I sent you the thing about W. Kamal Bell and Nicole Hannah Jones and <laughs> Arlen Hamilton and Minda Arts. You one of them one. So shout out, salute to you, honor. I really I welcome the prospect of keeping lines of communication open. You're a friend of the show. You come back anytime. Eventually you're gonna have another you have a book, you're gonna have something you got going on. Come over here and slide and promote that book. I want I want you back, okay? Thank you so much for thinking about me. Thank you all for spending some time listening to me. I share with Zach that my DMs are open for how I can support this community. I tell folks I love our community. So anything that I can do to support, please let me know. Wonderful. All right, y'all. Catch y'all soon. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.